who and what it's widow Jane or who's Jane, who's the, the widow, uh, <laughs> yeah. who's the husband, what, what was it about this place, you know, that, that you said, Hey, I want to go here and, and do something. Hey everyone, it's episode 312 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and before we start today's episode, talking to Lisa Wicker of Widow Jane, here's your weekly bourbon news update. Netflix has a new documentary coming called Heist. The six-episode series chronicles three of the biggest heists in modern American history through interviews and reenactments. Two of the episodes will feature... Pappy Gate, the story of Gilbert Toby Kurtzinger, the Kentucky man who pleaded guilty back in 2018 to stealing thousands of dollars of Pappy Van Winkle bottles from Buffalo Trace Distillery, where he had worked for 26 years. The episodes dealing with Pappy Gate are five and six, and they are called The Bourbon King. The series will premiere on Netflix on July 14th. And Stoli Group has announced the addition of John Rhea as Master Blender for Kentucky Owl. Rhea dedicated his career to Four Roses Distillery, where he had joined as a supervisor and parted as chief operating officer. During his long tenure, his responsibilities included quality control and product blending. Inducted into the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame back in 2016, Rhea has received numerous accolades for this commitment to the industry. Having served as a chairman of the Kentucky Distillers Association Board, Rhea was also honored with his lifetime membership one of only five such memberships in the 130-plus-year-old history. And digital convenience retailer GoPuff has acquired Liquor Barn, a leading independent chain of beer, wine, and liquor stores based in Louisville, Kentucky, from private equity firm Blue Equity for an undisclosed amount. GoPuff will integrate 23 Liquor Barn stores into its network, and GoPuff currently operates more than 450 sites, including 275-plus micro-fulfillment centers and the recently acquired BevMo that was done for $350 million and is delivering to customers now in more than 650 cities. So moving on to bourbon release news. Love it or hate it, flavored whiskey is here to stay. And Jim Beam is launching its newest product called Jim Beam Orange. The new orange flavor comes in at 65 proof, is now available at select retailers nationwide for $16. Michter's master distiller Dan McKee has approved the 2021 release of Michter's 10-year single-barrel Kentucky Straight Rye Whiskey, which will begin shipping next month in July of 2021, and Michter's 10-year rye has a suggested retail price of $170. Chattanooga Whiskey has announced their first release of their bottled and bond expression of Chattanooga Whiskey's Tennessee High Malt Style Vintage Series Spring 2017. It's a little bit of a mouthful there. Crafted from a selection of four unique high malt bourbon mash bills, all made within the same distilling season, each is composed of at least 25% of specialty malted grains. Since it's bottled in bond, it is 100 proof and has a suggested retail price of $50. Old Smoky Distillery, normally known for its range of moonshines, recently announced the launch of a new small batch premium whiskey brand with its first expression honoring its family ties called James Ownby Reserve Tennessee Straight Bourbon Whiskey. This will be available in major markets and at Old Smoky's Barrel House Distillery in Gatlinburg and 6th and Peabody in Nashville. It's bottled at 94 proof and has a retail price of $40. For today's episode, 
Lisa Wicker should be a household name to really any bourbon enthusiast. You will get to learn about her pedigree of industry and blending experience in this episode. And before ever meeting Lisa, people in the industry would tell me all the time that she had one of the best palettes around. And she's been involved with lots of brands from the very beginning and has played a critical role to their future successes. And now she leads Widow Jane and gives us some tricks on her blending experiences and much more. With that, enjoy today's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Dylan Dufresne. Dylan, who I wonder if he's related to Andy Dufresne. Of course, that's the fictional character from Shawshank Redemption, and thus he definitely is not related. But seriously, isn't Shawshank Redemption like the best movie ever? I love that movie. Anyway, so Dylan's uh, question is, uh, with the tightening of the Four Roses restrictions on implementing bottle alterations, specifically the stickers, and a possible uh, follow-suit by other distilleries, do you think this will also put an end to other bottle modifications, such as candles, lamps, lanterns, ashtrays, etc., etc.? Uh, the answer to that is yes, and I have actually seen legal letters being sent to people uh, who, make, uh, who make items and then resell them. They have uh, been telling people that they are against trademark. Now, some brands do not care, but there are a couple of distilleries that are very active out there keeping people from making lamps and soap pumps and things like that and keeping them from selling them. I actually had a YouTube segment on my thoughts on the Four Roses one because I missed a bourbon roundtable that talked about this. We were in New Orleans on our celebrating our anniversary. And I missed the opportunity to kind of chime in, but I think it's a wrong move by anybody to have um, implement any kind of effort to stop people from doing something to the bottles. I just think it's bad if somebody is reselling the alcohol. That's a different. That's a different thing. That is not. Uh, that has nothing to do with the alteration of the bottle. That's somebody selling an al- alcohol without a license. If they're selling a uh, a former bottle that's been cut in half and turned into a candle, or if they are uh, doing lamps or or whatever, then offer that company a a license opportunity, but don't stop that upcycle because you know it's good for it's good for the brands because it's continued marketing in my opinion. I think it's a bad move by any distillery to go after an enthusiastic base uh, around their product, especially for something as benign as a dadgum sticker. That's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you're like Dylan, and even if you don't have a cool last name like Dufresne, hit me up on fredminnick.com to send me your Above the Char idea, and I will read it on the air and give my opinion. But that's going to do it for this week, folks. Until next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. 
It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Give 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here today talking to somebody that we've actually heard about a lot of times in the bourbon industry. She's one of she's known as probably one of the best blenders out there. I've heard that from lots of different master distillers, a lot of different distilleries out there. And we also get to talk about a brand that we have never really showcased or talked about on the show before, too, which is Widow Jane. And I think, you know, Ryan, I, we had this conversation at some point and we've been talking about like, there's a lot of stuff that's really starting to up and come out of New York now. Yeah, it's like you got great scene in New York, a lot of great distilleries putting out some great products and and I've enjoyed a ton of them. And I'm, I'm really excited today because we, we've had some great Widow Jane offerings. We review some for the Whiskey Quickies. They're always fantastic blends and, uh, you know, we're dabbling into blending ourselves so today i'm gonna try to pick lisa's brain and maybe uh try to get some of her greatness we can take some of that knowledge that she has and uh apply it to what we do but no i'm I'm super excited about today's episode yeah ryan you need to be a sponge and just really soak in i got my evernote app out right now yes ready ready to take notes (laughs) like where do you start 100 mls 50 mls yeah Throw full barrels in. I don't know. We'll figure it out as we yeah. Go. And and I forgot we'd already we had met Lisa before. She's uh we met down in Bardstown at a Whiskey Pig when that was her whatever it's called now. Well, it hadn't happened in a couple of years. But yeah, I was like, <laughs> I don't think it's a thing anymore. Who knows? Yeah, but we'll we'll let her talk about that. The her relation in Bardstown and whatnot. So absolutely. So that's that's a good segue, good intro to the show. So today we have Lisa Wicker. She is the head distiller the head blender, and also the president of Widow Jane Distillery in Brooklyn, New York, or Red Hook, New York. So Lisa, welcome to the show. Hey, it's I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, you guys talked about, you know, talking to me a few years ago, and I've been waiting and waiting. So I finally- <laughs> I've been waiting for that call. <laughs> Feels like I made it. <laughs> you should have just reached out to us and said, hey, I want to come it. on. We've been like, sure, yeah, come on. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, why didn't we think about this before? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I've made it. Bourbon's pursuit finally, you know, call. Yeah, we're- it's great. Okay. We're two typical guys. We're just like, uh, yeah, just come on. But Lisa, we are we are excited to have you on the show today. And before we get into talking about bourbon, we talk about your history at Barstown and and Widow Jane and all that sort of stuff. We always like to start trying to learn a little bit more about you. So, your question is: What is the craziest fashion trend that you've ever rocked? <laughs> oh gosh, I thought that I, would be a good one. I'm old enough that um, Seventeen magazine was like the thing, you know, in the '70s, and leaving the house with a bandana tied on me like a shirt, <laughs> <laughs> much to my mother's horror. 
Nice. Nice. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. But you, Ryan. Man, I had this like uh grunger phase, like where I liked like Bush and Green Day and stuff, and I would wear like were you wearing like Jinko jeans? I was about to say that I wore <laughs> I had a pair of Jinko jeans and some airwalks and vans. And it's funny, uh now I'm wearing vans again. <laughs> my my wife bought me some and I'm like I used to wear these when I was like a seventh grader, but I love them. So I'm wearing them again. I still wear bandanas, but they only fit around my neck now. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and Jinko jeans no longer fit me. I don't even know if they exist. <laughs> oh, I was about to say, I was like, so the, I guess the one, I don't even know if it was a fashion trend, but it was something that uh, a lot of people were doing was like the butt cuts, like, you know, splitting your hair down the middle and going to the <laughs> oh, side. Gosh, like that was yeah. middle school. Oh man, I had, I had that and. There's some there's some very incriminating sixth grade photos out there of me that I've seen your frat days, Kenny. You had some special fratty gear. <laughs> That's a little bit different. That was that was kind of parked to the side and had a bunch of waves and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about your fashion, not your hair. Yeah, that too. All right, let's talk blending. <laughs> let's talk blending. Let's talk bourbon. So, Lisa, before we get into that, I, I we kind of let want to set the base and, and kind of understand a little bit about the history of of you and how you kind of got into this industry. So kind of kind of start us at the very beginning if you can. Oh my god, it's so it's um it's 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 tedious and boring. So I'll try I try to hit the high points on it and 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 let it the rest of it go, but a friend of mine in high school and college his uh, family had a winery. His dad was a law professor in southern Indiana and it was his avocation and he wanted it to be a vocation or his family business and he knew in order for a family farm winery to be viable, that they were going to have to have like Sunday sales and things. So he and some other founding fathers, you know, were in the courts and things in, in uh, Indiana. And I was actually in their home during these times, right? So, you know, they're coming back and celebrating some of these wins. And so that's when I got my head around the idea you can make alcohol for a living, never dreaming that's, you know, where my path would end up. I get married, have three kids. We live all over the country. I have take odd jobs because I can't figure out what it is I'm supposed to do with my life. Plus the fact that, you know, we end up in these different communities, not for terribly long sometimes. So, um, we get, end up in, uh, Columbus, Indiana. We move back there and I had a background in the arts and I'd started a costume shop for a professional dance company, kind of an underserved area of Southeastern Indiana and, um, Southwestern Ohio. And, and so, you know, it, grew from just a volunteer project to uh, a full shop and and six seamstresses and, you know, all kinds of craziness, right? And so I did that and I just still was like restless. It's like I'm supposed to be doing something else. So, you know, my kids are growing up and two kindergarten moms that my youngest, you know, we were like the field trip moms. They, they just said to me one day, they're like, you know, we know that you had said before that way back when you had dabbled in a little bit of wine stuff and we're working for this little winery and we need a crew to harvest grapes. I'm like, I'm in. So I worked as a farmhand that fall. I was um, costuming a nutcracker and it just fell into place. And so the man that I ended up going to work for, he asked me several times to come to work for him because I'd worked with him. This is the boring part. Years before my summer job in high school and college, I was on the maintenance crew for the Department of Natural Resources at a great big reservoir there. And so he knew I didn't mind getting dirty. Um, he ended up buying grapes off the other guy and knew I was working as a farmhand. And so he finally called me and said, would you come talk to me? And he said, would you please come to work for me? Three days in, I knew that's what I was supposed to do. And so one day he pops over a tank. He goes, what the hell did I finally say to get you to come to work for me? I'm like, you didn't. It just, I had gone because I was still so restless. I'd gone to a career counselor. My older kids had gone to, 
And he said, I specifically should be working with uh, value-added agriculture, specifically said wine, never said whiskey, but said, you know, that's that's what I was supposed to be doing. And he's like, oh my God, that's an omen, right? So I worked for him for eight years. I was lucky and met a woman, Ellie Butts. She was a um, retired Purdue professor. She was actually still at Purdue when I met her and she saw something in me and mentored me. And um, then when she retired from Purdue, she worked went to work for Lalaman Yeast and she's brilliant, right? And, you know, I got really fortunate that the man that trained me to make wine is incredibly intelligent. And, you know, then I had this woman to mentor me. And so he's the one that gave me the whiskey bug because he he was a whiskey drinker and we'd start comparing notes. And, you know, my oldest son-in-law, he comes into our, to my life, at the, you know, somewhere along there. And so whiskey becomes part of our family culture at this point in time. So I, when my youngest graduated from high school, um, I was getting ready to graduate from high school. One of the grape growers said, I'm not going to have grapes for you next year. She grew grapes and she had a 10-year-old established vineyard in Kentucky. And she said, I'm going to build a winery. And my boss said, Lisa's ready. You know, you should hire her as a consultant. And I went and talked to them in Kentucky and she didn't know I was willing to move. So she hired me at her kitchen table to be her senior winemaker and build this winery. And it just happened to be in Marion County, Kentucky, just a few miles from Maker's Mark and down the road from Limestone Branch. So started building the winery. We had some good success. I was working in a retrofitted barn trying to get the building built, meet Steve Beam during that time. And he's got, we used to joke that I had a license and no building and he had a building and no license because he had the whole building done and they haven't given, you know, given him his DSP yet. And so we started working together in the evenings. He was my extra set of hands for things and I was his extra set of hands. And then I had actually got myself on the legislative committee with the Wine Growers Association because I wanted to get a still at the at the winery because I wanted to make brandy. I thought, well, if I'm in that heart of distilling country, you know, my like I said, the winemaker that trained me had given me the bug. And and so anyway, so the winery owners decided it was time to get divorced. And I saw the writing on the wall. It's unfortunate that it's not an uncommon thing in the wine industry for divorce to like take out a winery. So I told Steve, I just like, you know, I got to figure out something, book a t- um, ticket to Sonoma because I'm like, well, maybe I should just work one harvest in Sonoma and then come back to Kentucky and regroup. And Steve and Paul Beam took me to dinner 24 hours after I resigned the winery and, and brought me on full time. Well, good. I mean, that's a, wow, yeah. what a fascinating journey. Baptism by fire after that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. So I was with Steve for a couple of years and then Lexco purchased them and I was the number two guy. So I got, I was fired. And thought, Wait, oh, so you I, said you are, you were fired because of that? Yeah, because of Lexco purchase. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, I wasn't you know? I mean, if Steve was sitting here, fair enough, right? He would say, "Lisa, I didn't fire you. You, I just told you you needed to find another job." <laughs> <laughs> he says it so probably eloquently, and you're you know he's got his mustache, and you're like, "Okay, fine." Yeah, I'll go yeah. Find another. And we job. worked together really well. You know, we had we were working sixty eight hour weeks, a lot of client work, but you know, you look back on it, and the time you're like, you're just so exhausted. But at the same time, you get like two years of experience for every year that you're there. You know, so looking back on it, it's what it was supposed to be exactly. And then I thought I was going to have to go back to winemaking, which I loved, but not as much as I love distilling. And I got lucky, and uh, my mentor is Dave Sherrick, the gentleman that put Woodford Reserve back together and was at Seagram's in Wild Turkey. And and he had, I had met him while I was working with Steve, and he saw something in me. I got really lucky, and he's to this day my most trusted advisor and question bouncer offer. And so he 
put my name in the hat for this project in South Carolina. They offered me a full-time job the last day. The last day I was at Limestone Branch. I said, I'm not ready. I need to stay in Kentucky. I've got too much to learn. So they countered with consulting. So I started consulting down there, then got an offer from a ridiculously amazing distillery that if I, I just, you know, to this day, sometimes I wake up and I'm like, I can't believe I didn't go to work for them. But Ted Huber called. I'd known him for years for winemaking and he found out I was on the market and He's like, don't take that offer until I have a chance to talk. Because I'm like, Ted, I'm you know two days away from accepting this. And he's like, don't do that yet. He goes, Let, talk to me. So I, I was thinking it was a professional courtesy because I'd known he and his wife for so long. So I go talk to them. And actually, there's a snowstorm. So I'm supposed to accept this offer of this other distillery on a Friday. And I'm supposed to talk to them on a Thursday. And Ted's like, please, Lisa, just wait. Can you just push them off till Monday? I said, okay. So I went and talked to he and his wife on Sunday. And they knocked the other offer out of the park, not just monetarily, but with what I was going to be able to do and what kind of um, decisions I was going to be able to make and how much control I had. <laughs> you know, and and so remarkable run there, right? Had a great run there. Thought I'd Ted and Dana Hugh were two of the nicest people that walk the face of the earth. I thought I would distill for them forever. And then I had another offer that came up, and my daughter said to me, "She's like, Mom, the only reason you're not thinking about taking this offer is because you don't want to have to tell Ted and Dana that you're resigning." I'm like, "You're right." <laughs> So, but Drew Colesby. I'm not resigning. I'm just going to another place. I ran (laughs) through somewhere. Drew Drew Colesby, I think, like in the side yard at Harrison Smith House, right? And and I think the kids were having something. And he's like, Lisa, hey, I've been meaning to call you. Um, There's this project, and I want to throw your name in the hat for it. It's about building the first craft distillery in Nelson County. He said, Are you interested? I said, You know, I always say yes, and then try to figure stuff out. You know, it's like. Well, I'm sure, certainly I'm curious. Yeah, you know, I want to do this. And so it seemed like the right project. So I left Starlight and oversaw that project and then left there and started my own consulting business after a year and had a couple clients right from the very beginning. And then um, Samson Missouri called me, who bought Widow Jane. They bought Few, they bought Widow Jane, Philadelphia Blue Coat Gin, and Mezcal Vago and Bren French Malt. And then since then, we bought Tequila Ocho. But so great portfolio, amazing things. But when he, when Robert Furness Rowe, my boss, calls, first thing I say is no, because I, I, I don't want to leave Kentucky. You know, my kids will move there, and I will be happy to work out of Kentucky, but I'm just not going to, like, pick up and move. And so I came on as a consultant for a year, and then after a year, he said, you know, he called me. And I, you know, was out here on the sidewalk, and he said, I want you to come on full-time with Samson and Surrey and dismiss your other clients. And so I said, okay. So I was director of distilling for all the brands for about six months. And hes I was spending most of my time on this project. He's like, he was president of Widow Jane at the time. So he's like, I'd like to transfer that title to you and bring you on full-time with Widow Jane. So wow. yeah, so it's a wild ride, fast ride. That's the long, boring story. Yeah, <laughs> That was a long, interesting story, really. I mean, gosh, you had your, worked with some of the greats, but uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, path to where you are today. I almost feel like we're connecting the dots too. I was like, we who have we not had on the podcast already that Lisa's worked with already right, in, in the past? I was just like, it's it. All these paths are starting to cross. I've been lucky. I've been really lucky. You know, you know, a couple times people approach me about like, should, should you, you know, maybe you should build a winery or build your own distillery, and like, you just learn too much going into other facilities. You know, I, and for me, I know I get tunnel vision and be reluctant to leave the property that I was on and things like that. So I have a tendency for people to ask me things and me to say yes, and then figure it out after I've said yes. I don't like think it through and then, you know, (laughs) (laughs) always make the most informed decision, but it's worked. I mean, sometimes I've hit, you know, hit a wall and it's okay because there's so much to do here. But yeah, I've had some, I've, I've had some lucky breaks. 
you know, another question for you is, you know, going from Columbus, Indiana, Lebanon, Kentucky, and then to Brooklyn, New York, like talk about the cultural change that like, was it scary for you? Or are you like, oh, I've always wanted to do like a big city thing. Like kind of talk about that. It's part of your personality. Um, somewhere in the middle. If my children hadn't moved to big cities, my oldest daughter, after she graduated from Purdue, moved straight 36 hours, started a job in Chicago, right? So I watched her maneuver the city and just the wealth of knowledge that she had from the different cultures there and everything. And it was so appealing. And then my son ends up going to law school in Chicago and same sort of thing. And now he's in DC. And then my youngest daughter and her husband are living in Nashville and watching all of my kids do all of this, right? You know, so I learned enough from my kids to understand that I could be comfortable living in a city, right? And pre-children, I probably wouldn't be too afraid to do that. But yeah. <laughs> You're like, hell, if I raise kids that can do it, then I can do it. Yeah. I mean, they've taught me a lot, right? Here, yeah. here we are. Yeah. So, so talk about your new gig. So what, who and what is Widow Jane or who's Jane? Who's the, the widow? <laughs> uh, yeah. Who's the husband? What, what was it about this place, you know, that, that you said, hey, I want to go here and and do something. Yeah. You know, when that same thing, when my boss, you know, started going, because you know, after I tell him no, right, he calls me again. He goes, I'm just going to fly up to Bardstown and take you to dinner. And I just want to talk to you, right? He got my name because I'm the consulting distiller for Mount Vernon for George Washington's rye whiskey for five years now in March. And so he got my name through that project and some success that we'd had there. And so he comes, he, he's British, he's charming. He used to run Bacardi internationally. And he, you know, he takes me to dinner and 10 minutes into dinner, I thought, I am going to go to work for this guy because <laughs> what he's talking to me about, what the potential is for this job, this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. At the time too, it was kind of like, um, because I came on as a consultant, he could dismiss me or I could dismiss him, right? You know, so there was some not so locked down kind of approach to it. So yeah, so I came out here and there were things I could start doing immediately to improve the situation here. And yeah, things have just continued to fall into place. They, you know, the originally the 10-year-old widow Jane had pretty much of a cult following from its first introduction when it was released at so it's seven years old, I think. And they'd sourced some remarkable barrels. And that was part of the package too. You know, he's telling me what, they, what kind of barrel stock they have. It's like, whoa, <laughs> okay. okay. Um, and, and then they've allowed me to purchase barrel, you know, and so they'd purchased some more barrels before I came on. They inherited the ones they did with the, you know, when they purchased widow Jane, then they bought some more with with my mentor with them. We had no idea. One day, Sherrick and I are at lunch and because he oversees a couple of projects in Bardstown here and there. And so he'd call me and we're having lunch and we don't like reveal like if we're working for people, right? You know, necessarily we'll talk about the project maybe, but not exactly, you know, and if somebody said to hold this in confidence, we're both pretty good about honoring that. And and so we're talking, he's talking about this project and he'd been, back, he'd been out to another state to buy some barrels and he'd been here and and it's like, yeah, you know, and I told him like, oh yeah, and this guy called me about this job. And then three weeks later, he picks up the phone. He's like, we are working for the same person, <laughs> <laughs> which that's a dream come true, right? He's still on the consulting role for, for Samson and Surrey. So he's in the wings if I need him, you know, and I have, he'll help me work through some situations sometimes and tease Absolutely. me about not charging me, even though I, I, <laughs> I never could pay you back. I can only pay it forward because you've been a lifeline for my entire distilling career. But yeah, so craziness, right? You know, and here I am. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's one thing that we also forgot to mention uh, that while we're recording here is that, you know, you are uh, mother-in-law to 
Chef Newman Miller, right? So he's been on the show. He's a podcast guest back in episode 208. Um, so you are- He's been on Top Chef. He's been on Top Chef, yeah. So at least during hopefully like Thanksgiving, he he treats everybody pretty well when the family gets together. Oh, we're also, spo- Newman's spoiled all of us, you know, <laughs> just absolutely spoiled Gosh. all of us. You know, he cooks for work. He cooks when he's happy. He cooks when he's sad. He cooks when he's stressed. He cooks when he's celebrating, you know, he just- it just, it's just, so it's pretty talented. remarkable. Gosh, he's yeah. so good. Yeah, and to yeah. watch my grandsons go, I don't think I want to eat this. I'm like, you have no idea what you're saying and who you're saying that to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> eat that. <laughs> yeah. One day they'll look back and they'll realize all the mistakes they made. <laughs> yeah. So more about Widow Jane, I guess one of the questions is like the history of the brand. That's something that I'm not terribly familiar with and, you know, Ryan had hinted like what happened to the husband and who's Jane, but, you know, kind of... Uh, do you have any kind of insight into that as well? Yeah, Widow Jane, um, the name comes out of Rosendale, New York. It's folklore, you know, and we all know folk- folklore is based on some truths. And then after the story gets told a few times, people can't quite remember, you know, all the details. But we use water from the Ro- Rosendale mines. And it's one of the things that intrigued me with this project because we don't use the water for mashing. We use it for proofing. And it's high in magnesium and high in calcium and causes its own issues with whiskey quality as far as getting it polished and beautiful and on the shelf. And the Widow Jane mine backs up on our mine. So I'd hired some you know water engineers. And I know that the Widow Jane mine comes in here and our mine comes in here, but because they were man-made caves that had this water filter down through the limestone to fill the caves up after they stopped mining them, that they they don't intersect. They're like completely separate because the mine was dug in from one side of the hill and from the other side of the hill. So Snyder apparently was a jerk. So he owned the mines and was terrible, I guess, and to his employees and everything. Apparently he passes away and there's this kind woman in his life we don't know if it's a wife, mistress, sister, whatever. And the cave ends up getting nicknamed Widow Jane after this person. And so there are people that I don't even know for sure if that was like Jane was a real name or if that was just a nickname, right? And so you can actually visit the Century House now. We have a great relationship with them and try to support them financially. And so you can go walk into the Widow Jane mine. It's really cool. We were supposed to have a huge party there last summer. And of course, COVID, like wipe that out. But the acoustics in it are really great. They have a lot of concerts in there. And you can actually just pull off the side of the road and go to the historic site and visit the Snyder House, at the Century House, and you know go into the mine there. Our mine is on the backside of the hill. It's under lock and key. I'm a little picky about everything that goes into the whiskey. So yeah, it's it's uh it's all um locked up. But um yeah, Are it's you storing barrels in the mine too? No, we're talking about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just roll a few in there, see what happens. Yeah, the humidity is so insane. It's amazing because it's a cave, right? So you open up the door and your eyes have to adjust, and the smell of it is so incredible. It's like fresh rain on clean dirt kind of smell, you know, and it just kind of overwhelms you, and then your eyes adjust, and it's you know, these gorgeous caverns with this huge pool of water in it, you know, we've got millions of gallons of water in there. And so I go periodically just to make sure the withdrawal equipment's working properly. And, you know, we have it tested going into the truck. We have it tested coming out of the truck. We're sticklers for quality. So yeah, it's a remarkable project. I love the fact that it's just so elemental. So get get nerdy on us here real quick. So why would you use it for proofing, but not for mashing? I inherited this project and they were already doing that. And it makes a huge difference. At first I was like, okay, you know, what is it about this? And I had the water recipe 
you know, I had the water analyzed and had the recipe broken down and it was really high in magnesium, really high in calcium. It's actually very, very close recipe to a very famous French mineral water in a green bottle. And mm. so I encourage people, we don't have a cast strength whiskey because if we don't put the water in there, the notes for Widow Jane don't pop. You have a nice whiskey, but there's a certain people like, this is still a Widow Jane whiskey. And it's because we proof it down with that water. So I encourage people, it's like, let some of that famous French mineral water go flat, get a cast strength whiskey and cut it with DI water, distilled water, and then cut it with the mineral water. And you'll see the difference. It's the reason we pick mineral water to drink, right? There's other stuff going on and, and it enhances like the dark stone fruit notes we like, our cherry note, um, our baking spice notes. And without it, they're there, but they don't pop the same way. And then sometimes there's other notes that are a little more prevalent, but it certainly is what makes the, you know, it's the signature widow chain. We don't use it for mashing. We use, you know, um, and I am laying barrels down in Kentucky too. And so obviously we're using Kentucky, you know, wonderful Kentucky limestone water there. But this New York City water here, surprise of surprises, is fabulous. So when I'm investigating all of this, they're actually these like filtration units that you can buy. Like, so if you're in Arizona and you want to make a New York bagel because you don't have the right water, you can get this filtration thing that will actually put the same like minerals back in it. So you're making your bagels with true New York profile water. And so the water is so good here that we mash with it because it makes some really clean, beautiful fermentations. You know, we all know that calcium's going to aid, aid a healthy fermentation. So yeah, we got lucky, right? I mean, you made a good point there. I didn't really think about it because people go crazy over New York bagels. I don't know what it is, but the, I yeah. guess it is, it is something. And the, the water. pizzas up there, Italian food, maybe it's the water. Right. People, you know, there are people like, there's just no pizza, like, you know, New York style pizza. And part of it's because of the water. It's, it's funny you say that. Like I'm sitting here, I have this 12 year widow Jane and man, the cherry note on this it says in Indiana, so I, yeah. I'm I, I'm assuming where it's from, but uh, uh, <laughs> man, it that cherry note is so pronounced versus other you know similar Indiana uh, offerings. It's so I, it's something I did notice on this one. Yeah, without that without that mineral water, it wouldn't. I mean, it would be there, but it not pop it like it does. Yeah, it's crazy. So, kind of talk about your you know buying stocks, distilling. When are you going to start blending your own stuff with the stocks that you have? Or have you started doing that? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. 
Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. So kind of talk about your buying stocks, distilling, when are you going to start blending your own stuff with the stocks that you have, or have you started doing that? Kind of talk about what that that road of sourcing to full-blown your stuff is going to look like. Yeah, with the growth, you know, every day the path kind of wanders off a different direction a little bit. You know, we're going to continue to source and blend. One of the things I was tasked with when I was started here was taking that 10-year single barrel and turning it into a small batch. And the reason for that is because they wanted to keep the 10-year age statement on it. And so we knew we needed to blend across Tennessee, Indiana, and Kentucky in order, you know, because that way as stocks are coming in, you know, we can keep that profile, but add a little bit more from one state or another if we needed to do that. And some days we do. The other project that I inherited they'd already started was this open pollinated cross of heirloom corn. It's a cross between Bloody Butcher and Wapsi Valley. Um, when I distilled for Steve Beam, I distilled heirlooms. When I distilled for Ted Huber, we distilled, distilled heirlooms there as well. And that's part of the reason, you know, I was picked for this job. And, you know, we had some corn that came with the project. There's just like 26,000 bushels that are in a silo in New York. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to, in a rural area, right? So I'm going to just fly out there and I'm going to drive out to this place. And the elevator was immaculate. There was like not a stray kernel of corn. There wasn't a piece of gravel out. And I'm like, I'll bet this corn is sound. And the corn was so sound. So we brought it back. I trucked it all back to Kentucky because we did not have the capacity to run all of that here. And it had just enough age on it that we needed to distill it or get rid of it. And so we took it back to Kentucky. We ran a trial. Wilderness Trail, they didn't have room for us to like continue to go there. So we went to another distillery and ran the rest, the balance of it there. And then during that time, my boss, you know, talked to Castle and Key. So I started talking to Peterson Farms, Bernard Peterson. He grows for everybody. And they'd approached me when I was working on the distillery in Bardstown. So I called them and I said, you know, I'm not in Bardstown anymore, <laughs> Brooklyn. And I don't know if you're still interested because they knew that the heirloom project that I was thinking about was going to be quite a bit larger. And they'd had a lot of craft distillers approach them, but nobody wanted, you know, very much, maybe 20 acres or 15 acres. And I needed hundreds of acres. And so I just happened to call Bernard at the right time. He goes, guess what? My daughter lives in Manhattan. My wife and I are coming. My, my sister-in-law, who's with the business and my brother-in-law, we're going to come and, you know, check you out. We've got some hours to kill before she's off work. And so they show up here in like 10 minutes. He takes me aside. He goes, I got to talk to everybody else, but I think we're going to, you know, we're going to grow your corn for you. And remarkable learning experience. We broke all yield records. You know, that those, some of those heirlooms usually yield about 53, you know, on average 53 bushels. And we were knocking them into like 83 bushels an acre, you know, without, you end up with a lot more corn than you, pl- you, you planned on. But um, so yeah, Scott, the agronomist there, you know, we, ha- it was just fascinating for everybody. They pulled in an agronomist for UK and and, you know, we were learned as we got went, you know, because even though we'd all, or I distilled, you know, on a smaller scale, but the, turning it into a large scale project, there was just lots to learn. We had to, you know, Bernard had to buy some lower forks to get it harvested because, you know, the corn ears are all over the stocks. And you have those highlights of your career and being in the combine with Scott 
you know, just talking corn and watching what was happening with the harvest on that scale with those heirlooms was, you know, just one of the most remarkable days of my career, right? And he was so excited and I was excited and Bernard was excited. And plus the fact you're like, okay, I'm not going to get fired too, right? (laughs) You know? That's a positive. (laughs) Yeah, because you blow it up. But we also grow in upstate New York. Out, out of Avoca, New York, a family that used to be dairy farmers. There's, it's not a co-op. It's a collective of farmers that share land and things that they used to all be dairy farmers. And unfortunately, you know, the dairy industry has been hit so hard. They decided to get into open pollinated grains for brewers and distillers. And yeah, I'm getting ready to buy some Danko rye off them because I, I want to, you know, we're jumping into the Empire Rye program. But yeah, you know, so that's where all of our production corn comes for this facility from upstate. And then we grow seed corn up there and that seed corn goes to Kentucky. And then I have another seed corn farmer in Pennsylvania, one of the farmers that originally helped them with this project. And because I hail and ice storms and locusts and acts of God, right? I need to have seed corn because it's a one of a kind crop. I've got a you know, business plan built off of one of a kind crops. So I've got seed corn in two places and then Castle and Key, my boss has contracted for me to be able to go in. My protocol for heirloom corn is quite a bit different than like yellow dent. I cook it a lot colder and hold it a lot longer. I learned because I've effed everything up over the years that... That's how you learn. (laughs) And one day... failing It's called failing forward. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I'll give you credit for that, but I'm going to adopt that. (laughs) So one day, you know, I'm just still at Starlight and it's like, because Ted and I are old winemakers, so, you know, we're still checking the sugar and refractometer, right? And, like, it's grape juice. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this can't be right. So I clean it off. I check it again. It's like, holy cow, look at the conversion on this. And I had let the temperature drop, and I'd held it longer. I was doing something else, right? And I trust in my phone in my back pocket, and, the, t- the you know, the alarm didn't go off, right? And so I run it up to Ted. I go, will you look at this? He's like, well, I can't repeat exactly what he said, but there were some words. And he said, is this is what you're doing right now. And he ran back down with me. He's like, holy cow, right? You know, so after that, I started slowing the process down a little bit. And also what I learned too is that if you cook these heirlooms too hot, you're going to throw a lot of corn oil and then that corn oil burns in the still. And those sometimes, people, you know, people are like, oh, I'm not so sure about heirloom corn. You know, it's got that funk in it. Well, that funk comes because you're burning corn oil in the, in the still. And so, you know, you get kind of a truer flavor. So anyway, so it's our protocol at Castle and Key. It's our corn. And then I go on site, you know, I pop in and check numbers and check mash and give them a little surprise Lisa visit. They're like, oh shit, she showed up. Like we better, better get our, get our stuff in order here. If I get lucky and it's late enough at night or something like that, you know, then I get to like hose out the fermenters, you know, I love that stuff. (laughs) So you're you're more likely to do that place is magical too, you know, showing up late at night and there's just some really remarkable people that work there and, you know, being able to check the distillate and. For sure. Yeah. So you're, I mean, this is, it's amazing because you all are doing all kinds of stuff. You're distilling different places. You're sourcing from different stuff. You're distilling there in New York as well, correct? Yeah. So you've just got things going everywhere here. So how does, how does it all come together for one particular product that you're trying to release? So let's say you've got, you know, five different options of where you're taking stuff in to be able to blend and put it together. And I know you've got, you know, your Widow Jane tenure, you've got, um, you know, the vaults, you've got all kinds of stuff. Like, so how do you, how do you take everything and decide what product it's going to be or what it's going to be when it grows up and and so on and so forth? Um, Continual process. I mean, my bosses are visionaries. They will start to say, you know, they're watching all the trends. They're watching, it's like... One thing I really love about them is they really love tradition in the bourbon industry. 
So they honor that and then say, here, Lisa, take this and see what you can do with it, right? But we come up with those ideas together. We're always, I mean, they were always brainstorming, always working forward. A lot of experiments that they're like ho-hum after I get done, right? And so they're not worth pursuing. Or there's things that like, uh, we're hitting something here. We need to like, you know, jump off with this and, and keep going. And so, yeah, we got a lot of things lined up for our future. We'll just keep working on them to see if we can work it out. If we can, we manufacture it here because we are rustic. So even though we're in this city, right, we've got this Carl still, we're actually supposed to be building a larger distillery right now. And COVID has put that, we're using it, you know, for barrel storage and things, but COVID kind of slowed that project down a little bit. And so we've got warehouse constraints, we've got bottling. And so right now, here's the crazy thing about Widow Jane. There used to be a chocolate factory in that we shared space with. And the chocolatier went out on his own um, from the company here. And I mean, we didn't own that, even though they were under the same roof anyway, it's a whole long story. But so the chocolate equipment got sold off. So I turned around and bonded everything everything I could bond, I've bonded so that we can shift manufacturing a little bit. I'm moving the bottling lines so we have more room, you know, COVID, you know, because right now I'm trying to split the the stills too close to the bottling line. And so because of COVID, I'm trying to keep the distillers away from the bottlers and all that sort of stuff. So we're getting ready to shift some, make some major shifts in our equipment and our space here so that we can blow up what we were doing here instead of waiting to get into the new facility. So yeah, you know, it just like okay, let's take the vaults, right? It's like, okay, we have these older stocks. My boss is like, you got to figure out something to do with them. You know, I'd like to release, you know, really premium product, figure out what to do and, you know, how this stuff comes together. Like Bruce and Zach Zimlick. I don't know if you've talked to them. You need to interview them. They're the ones, you know, they run Zach Cooperage. All right. I guess we got to add somebody else to the list. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, grandpa slash dad, he, Bert Zimlick, he started that. He was with Brown Foreman and he was with Brown Foreman Cooperage. And then he took over the old defunct sea rooms plant in Athertonville, Kentucky. Then they had a contract, tens of thousands of barrels they were selling to one of the big guys. And overnight they got that contract cut and somebody gave them my name and we had lunch at Mammy's. It's where all good, all, all business deals happen. Mammy's. <laughs> exactly. Business deals and 2000 calorie lunches. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. Day enders. Any place that puts potato sticks and cheese on your salad is like, you know, it's all good. Right. And, <laughs> and so anyway, so we have lunch and they didn't really understand the craft distilling world. And so it's like, you're going to end up with a lot more customers. You're not going to have like one big contract, but you know, you might find this pretty interesting. And so, um, American Craft Spirits Association had already happened and ADI was still happening. Like you need to you don't have time to get a booth, but you need to get on a plane and go, you know, like, so anyway, we've been friends ever since. And, um, you know, provided me with a lot of cooperage. My thank you gift is like one of a kind finish on my barrels. And then also I get two to four year old air season wood. So that, you know, it's like, uh, it's like a dream come true. And then one day they'd stopped by and we were drinking some whiskey on my front porch and they were just talking. I was like, we're talking about different stuff. And they're like, how's New York? And they're like, oh yeah, we've got this eight-year-old air season wood on the back of the lot. We don't know what to do with it. I almost had a heart attack. I'm like, well, you just raised some barrels for me. And they're, so they call and they're like, Lisa, we can't get them because they know I like 53 gallon format. And I was like, we can't get them to 53s. We can only raise 30. I'm like, that's fine. Just get those together. So I aged some of that 14, 15, 16 year old Baltz whiskey in that eight-year-old air season wood. And that's where we came up with some flavors that just didn't, you know, hadn't been invented before. Trying different things then. Yeah. And so we followed it this year. I'm like, okay, what have you got this year? Right. And so they sent me some Ozark Oak and all kinds of Minnesota and some Appalachian Oak. And the Appalachian Oak was, that was it. It's like, okay, that's what I want. And so this vault, the vault's 15, that's 15, 16, 17 years old. 
was rebarreled in that Appalachian. And it was five years old. It had been air seeded for five years, Appalachian oak. Yeah. Do you find it is a like a, a fun challenge when you have to create something that's unique or different out of a source product? Because we all know that we can we can all buy Indiana whiskey any day of the week we wanted to. And yeah. don't be wrong, it's it's good stuff. There's plenty on the market. Do you find it as a good challenge or something fun to try to put a unique spin on on a source whiskey? It is. It's terrifying. You know, it's sometimes you're like, you, it's like you can't, you can't overthink it, right? Because you, you're like, you know, you wake up at 2.45 in the morning, like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Right? You know, like, what am I getting myself into here? And then it all comes together, you know, it was actually not any different than costuming years ago where you couldn't come up with the idea, you couldn't come up with the creative idea that you needed. And all of a sudden, boom, it would hit, you know, and you're like, okay, I can run with this. But yeah, I love the process. I love tinkering with it. I'm meticulous. When I do like the vaults, I never blend more than 21 to 23 barrels at a time because, you know, I do the five barrel small batch and I'm also now blending our our rise and things five barrels at a time. But rather than just vat them, like choose the barrels and then vat them, I choose the barrels that I think I'm going to use. And then I've got, I, I have an incredible team here. We are small, but everybody here is just amazing. And, and so Duncan, who used to be at Woodford, a whole long story, he's from Michigan, went to Chicago, worked in a liquor store, fell in love with whiskey, goes to Woodford, ends up being on the night shift there, fermentation and distillation. And then he decides to go to Antarctica for three tours, right? And so then he ends up in Brooklyn and I got lucky and his resume fell on my desk. And so he's a great front line. He's got an amazing, he loves whiskey. He's got an amazing palate. And so you know, he'll like write notes on bottles for me sometimes It's because like, he kind of knows what I'm going to like and I not, but or tell me low volume. So I know, you know, if I'm how that's going to represent in the blend. After I choose all those, I put a blend together, but I don't put it all together at once. So like, we'll start with five to seven barrels and then he'll bring me that base blend. And then I'll choose my next five to seven barrels off of that base blend until we get the volume that we're looking for. Because that way, if I have a rogue barrel or a stinker, you know, that when I, if I tasted through first and I didn't know that it was going to be a stinker, like, okay, so let's say round three, I get one of those barrel, those rogue barrels, like, ah, it's not exactly what I wanted. I still have an opportunity, like my next two or three rounds to blend that out. So if I batted it all and that stinker was in there, it's like, I'm sunk, right? It's too late. Yeah. Too late. So I'm glad how we get the, uh, the official verbiage of somebody that's been in the industry forever. Be like, yes, we just call them a stinker. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I write stinker. Or, or a rogue barrel. I like that. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows what stinker means here. It doesn't mean I can't use it. It just means it's an outlier. You know, it there doesn't mean that it's like unusable. It just means that I'm going to have to pay some. It's like a problem child. I'm going to have to pay a little extra attention to it and try to listen to it and decide where it needs to go later because we're not going to waste a barrel, right? And they all have their own charms, but just sometimes, you know, maybe it's just way tannic. It's going to influence the blend too much or it's just kind of blah or whatever, you know, so, and I need to pump up some more, some of the other flavors or something like that. So, and, and you thought originally you picked it, you know, you picked it as like maybe one of your first or second rounds and then you're realizing, ah, it's not going to fit with the, it's not playing well with the others. <laughs> it is amazing how like one barrel or just like a slight variation of something will throw off a blend. Yeah. Like that's what I found, like creating ours is that the slightest fluctuation and a different product will throw something way off. And that's what I found challenging, but fun in the whole process. You were talking about vatting. How, when you do decide, you know, all right, we've got all these barrels lined up. This is working perfect. We're It's time to vat. How long do you all let it vat before you go to bottling? Through a minimum of three weeks. Uh, it depends. We are so 
influenced by the weather here because we don't have any temperature control. I'm actually in our bar right now. It's the only place we have any heating (laughs) or cooling. And we stay bundled and everybody's got battery operated heated clothing and things like that for the rest of our facility. And because we were going to move out, right? So we were leasing this place and, you know, it wasn't, it's not like we're trying to torture everybody. We just didn't think we were going to be here. And so in our warehouse, you know, where we're blending and everything is definitely very reflective of of the temperature. So we monitor it, you know, Duncan will pull stuff for me and I'll take it home so it'll warm up overnight and and to see. And then because I'm picky or crazy or insecure or something, (laughs) I blend then when it goes to the bottling line because I want him to divide it out between three tanks. And so we'll do that. We'll pump it over to get some oxygen in it. Um, We'll let it rest some more. And then when it comes to blending day, they line the three tanks up for me. I get a ladder and I start blending at two to three gallons at a time. It goes the bottling line 50 gallons at a time. And so as long as I can keep those totes coming to the bottling line, you know, we're in good shape. But I literally get up and down the ladder and we'll blend it all until, like I said, it might be insecurity. It's funny you say that because uh, I went through the same thing, insecurity of like trying it a thousand times and like just like this, that, and you're like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, you know, it's just... It's a, it's like you're putting yourself out there, you know, just even though you're just blending whiskey, but it's like you tie it to your, uh, you know, your, your, your personal self. Do you have like a blending day, like hype music for you? It's just psyched up for the day. <laughs> you know what? My bottling team has the best taste in music. And so that's always our soundtrack today. It was something I had never heard from the, like today it was, you know, two of them are from El Salvador and, and we got Mexico and the United States and all over it. And, but their, their music, I mean, you know, sometimes it's like Donna Summer Day. <laughs> in other days, today it was Hank Williams Jr. Day. I mean, we had other artists in there too. That's that some was, good blending, yeah. blending yeah. music. And you don't know if it's going to be, yeah, you just never know if it's going to be Led Zeppelin or you don't, you just never know, you know? And so for, sometimes I have to, you know, kind of like hum along to my childhood, you know? It's like, oh, I know all this. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you listen to Zeppelin and the blend comes out hotter than oh, you yeah. want you're like, I was so amped up. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. So yeah, it's crazy, you know? And so one of my, um, you know, distillers, she's British and and same thing, right? You know, she'll have cream on or something. And then she, you know, and she's young. So it's like, how do you even know this? And then my other distiller, he's he's still fairly new to us, you know, so he hasn't quite asserted himself in it. So I don't know exactly where his music taste lies. But yeah, you know, you don't know if it's, like I said, heavy metal day or I've even heard Adele. <laughs> <laughs> It's all That's over the when place. You get though. a nice, uh, you get a nice mellow yeah. blend there yeah, exactly. <laughs> after Adele. Exactly. You just never know. So I don't ever have to pick music because that it's always a treat every day. It's like, oh, when are they going to listen to today? <laughs> and they put a whole playlist together for the day, like every day. You just never cool. Know. Well, Lisa, I do want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to learn, you know, more about you, more about Widow Jane, and I don't think we even scratched the surface of the history and the stories and uh, also some of the expertise that we could soak off you as well. So we're going to have to make this uh, a round two at some point. Okay. Well, even if it's the round two on the front, my front porch with some whiskey in Kentucky, you know, that'd be fine. Sign us (laughs) up. We'd love to. We'll be here. Yeah. We'll text Newman. Yeah. 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 If if we get Newman to make dinner for us, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) We'll bring recording equipment. He brings food. Yeah. You bring whiskey. I think it all, it all works out. Get some banana croquettes. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's hilarious! Yes, yeah, Steve Beam taught me how to make banana croquettes when I first moved to Kentucky. <laughs> they're they're magical, Kenny. You don't know what you're missing. I still haven't had them. <laughs> Have Bananas, mayonnaise, them? and peanuts. No, heck no, no. It sounds disgusting. 
Yeah. Steve-O came over to my house one time and we made banana croquettes. I'm like, this is this is a banana croquette. This is all there is. <laughs> it sounds a lot fancier than it really is. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's fancy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lisa, if people want to find out more about you, they want to learn more about Widow Jane, are you on any socials and how can they follow you? Yeah, LB Wicker at LB Wicker for, on Instagram. Um, I do have a Facebook page that, you know, used to be kind of personal, but now it's all, all work-related. Um, at Lisa Roper Wicker, um, widowjane.com. And you can follow us at Widow Jane on Instagram as well. We uh, Michelle, our art director, vice president here, she is remarkable, remarkably talented. And you can see some of her work there as well. And yeah, we got some crazy campaigns going on and stuff like that. You like to look down the street. We have this wheat paste campaign. So we got this guy that goes out in the middle of the night and then he wheat paste Widow Jane all over these wheat paste, you know, he's like, wallpaper paste and all over Manhattan and Brooklyn, like where the, the, uh, green construction things are, you know, guerrilla advertising, they call that. <laughs> so sometimes yeah. they just call it vandalism, you know, <laughs> they feel right Gra- off graffiti. <laughs> I'm dismissed. Yeah. Yeah. Widow Jane. It's, you know, it's a remarkable place. Yeah. Well, we'll have to come up and see the mine at some point yes, too. You will. Yes, you will. I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to that. So. Okay. Sounds good. We'll put that on our, uh, our New York trip. All right, Ryan? <laughs> our New York bourbon trail. Yep. Start in Brooklyn and end up in Finger Lake. 180, yep. Cover the whole 185 state. distilleries in New York now. Oh, wow. California has a number one and New York is number two with the number. Yeah, remarkable distillers association here. See, there's a lot more we talk about. Yeah. So, But Lisa, I do want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. So make sure you follow Lisa and also follow Widow Jane on all those socials. And if you want to follow us, you should probably do it as well. Bourbon Pursuit. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, you know how to find us. But with that, I'm going to say cheers, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>